Shalom, this is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I thank you for this Shabbat that you have given us for this opportunity to gather together as mishpacha, as family, to worship before you, to receive from you, and most importantly, to meet with you. Father, I pray that as we open up your word today, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it be your voice heard, your words received, that nothing in me will be involved except that which you have ordained specifically for this purpose. Father, have your way in our midst and prepare our hearts to receive from you. B'shem Yeshu In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen and Amen. Uh, if you have your scriptures, go ahead and open up to Isaiah 54. This is uh, from this week's Haftarah. Um, as I said last week um, in the, the message, we can look at the, the Haftarot of Consolation, the seven messages of Isaiah, uh, that are traditionally read between Tishbab and Rosh Hashanah, and we can see this really interesting slicing of a very specific passage of scripture out of the, the order of the, the seven message of Isaiah. In these seven weeks of reading from Isaiah, we, in essence, read from Isaiah 40 through Isaiah 60, just a little past Isaiah 60, uh, all in our, our uh, services uh, throughout the, the week as we're reading the Parsha and whatever it may be. Uh, but interestingly enough, last week's Haftorah Parsha stops just short of Isaiah 53, and this week's Parsha starts just short or just post Isaiah 53. This week's traditional Haftorah reading is Isaiah 54, 1 through 10, uh, which is a very short Haftorah passage. If you can't do the math, it's 10 verses. That's it, 10 verses. Um, And Isaiah 53, for the most part, is entirely nixed out of the seven messages of Isaiah. And I think that, unfortunately, it was an intentional reality from uh, the, the uh, sages and rabbis of old, post-Messiah, um, and uh, in, in a method or a way of trying to prohibit or, or uh, an effort to try and keep Jewish people from recognizing the reality of Yeshua as the ser- suffering servant of Isaiah 53, as our salvation who offered his life for our sins, who took on our sins, our burdens, our transgressions, and our punishment upon himself that we may be set free. Uh, I, I honestly, and, and I say this with, with uh, absolute sincerity, I do not believe it was done with uh, a vindictive attitude. I don't believe it was done because the rabbis wanted to particularly mislead anybody, but I do believe it was done because of the ultimately the representation of what's supposed to be the Jewish Messiah by the non-Jewish believing world, by the church. Uh, and the Jewish world looked at what was supposed to be, theoretically, this Messianic Jewish entity, this Jewish Messiah, who now is being presented as something completely contrary to Judaism, something completely different from Judaism, and presented as an entirely new religion. I think the rabbis went, this clearly can't be the Messiah, because if it were the Messiah, people would be returning to the Torah, not walking away from it. And so I honestly believe that it was a desire to protect the, 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 the souls, the, the neshamot of the, uh, the, the Jewish people to, to not see this passage. As a matter of fact, in most uh, traditional Jewish communities, you're really not 
supposed to, or at least you're not encouraged to read Isaiah 53 without somebody being there to tell you what it really means, out of fear that you might find out what it really means. Um, And so it's very important for us to recognize, I believe, that this passage from Isaiah 53 is supposed to be a part of the seven messages of consolation from Isaiah because what better a message of consolation after the destruction of the temple than the reality that the Lord has in fact provided not just a means for physical restoration in what ends up becoming the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple and ultimately Israel as a whole leading up to the the first century Messiah uh, coming, but But what better than the physical restoration than the ability for a spiritual restoration because of the works of Messiah Yeshua. And so as we look at the scriptures, what we realize in the Haftarot uh, read during this period is that interesting and very uh, convenient slicing out of Isaiah 53. Now we really dove into depth with Isaiah 53 last week uh, in our message and looking at the reality of what Yeshua did as, as our suffering servant. And Isaiah 54 actually picks up on the, the message that we end with Isaiah 53 on, which is this message of restoration, not just a physical, but a spiritual restoration for the nation of Israel. So if you have your scriptures, Isaiah 54, beginning with verse 1. Sing, barren one, who has not given birth. Burst into singing and shout, you who have not travailed. Uh, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married one, says Adonai. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out your tabernacle curtains. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right hand and to the left. Your offspring will possess the nations and will resettle the desolate cities. Now, let's pause there. Because this is, as we've said and as you've Hopefully read Isaiah over uh, your, you know, the course of your life uh, some. You recognize that Isaiah is not necessarily the most uh, encouraging and uplifting book in the Bible. As a matter of fact, most of Isaiah is Isaiah, or the Lord speaking through Isaiah saying, hey, you really messed this up bad. I'm going to have to take you out of the land and destroy Israel and destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple in order for you to get back on track so that I can bring you back here restored and renewed that you can do what you're supposed to do in the first place. Um, And then we come to these passages from Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 60 that are the Lord speaking through the prophet Isaiah saying, listen, I know I've told you all of these really bad things are going to happen, and they're going to because I know as well as you do that you're not going to turn back like I'm calling you to do so that this doesn't happen. But when it does happen, and when you do turn your heart back to the Lord as I want you to and as you should, then these are the things that are going to happen. I will restore you. I will renew you. I will bring you back again. I will uh, uh, rebuild the, the city of Jerusalem and the the temple will be standing again and so on. And so here what we recognize is the Lord is in the midst of Isaiah telling Israel, telling the, the, the southern kingdom that the Lord is going to be ushering them out of the land by the hands of foreigners and that the temple in Jerusalem are going to be destroyed, and they are going to be, in essence, enslaved, if you would, by the hands of foreigners, that uh, he says, but don't worry, because you're going to enlarge your tent stakes, you're going to enlarge your camps, you're going to resettle the tabernacle, you're going to be bigger than you were before. Things are... And so he's saying, listen, I know things are going to get rough, I'm telling you this in advance, but I'm telling you now that on the other end of this, the reward is so much better. On the other end of this, you're going to come back with a hunger for the Lord, with a hunger for righteousness. And from there will come great blessing because of your hunger for righteousness. So then he carries on, verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed, nor cringe, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth 
and you will remember the reproach of your widowhood no more. For your maker is your husband. Adonai Zivaot is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He will be called God of all the earth. For Adonai has called you back like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of one's youth that is rejected, says God, your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but I will regather you with great compassion. Again, I want to pause there. Let's take the time to do a little inventory of the narrative of the scriptures. Did God actually desert Israel? Or was it rather that Israel deserted the Lord? I honestly, I mean, we can look at the scripture and recognize God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Over and over and over again, that's the message to Israel. The Lord never deserted Israel, but that was Israel's perspective because we were so buried in our own sins and our own mistakes and our own issues that we could not see the Lord's presence uh, over us the entire time, that we could not see what the Lord was doing around us the entire time. Just like we say with the blessings and curses. If you look at the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy, the curses are nothing more than the removal of the blessings. And if you look at the narrative of what the blessings are, and you look at the curses, and you look at Israel's history, recognize but God never really did remove those blessings. It's just that Israel was veiled from the reality of being able to see what those blessings were until they returned with Teshuvah. And as believers, we recognize the value of that message because as believers, when prior to our walk with the Lord, we don't see the hand of God in our life, right? We don't see the hand of God in our lives. We don't see the reality that it's his breath that's in our lung. We don't see the reality that the only reason that we're still walking today, in spite of all of the stupid things that we've done over the course of our lives, is because the Lord took care of us and protected us and guarded us and cared for us in spite of the fact that we were not walking faithfully in Him. But once we come on the other side and we accept salvation and Yeshua and the restoration of what we are to be as the creation of God, breathing the breath of God within our lungs, when we're restored to Him in that manner through Messiah, suddenly our eyes are open to all of the reality of His blessings to all of the reality of everything that he has done for us and how he's cared for us. So it's not that God ever actually deserted Israel. As a matter of fact, he says, for a brief moment I deserted you, but I will regather you with great compassion. If he deserted them, why would he ever bring them back again? Deserters don't come back, right? You think about war. Deserters desert because they don't want to deal with what they're dealing with. They don't come back. Verse 8, in a surge of anger, I hid my face from you uh, for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, you will have compassion. I will have compassion on you, says Adonai, your Redeemer. And it's important the wording here, because immediately after he says uh, that I deserted you, but I will bring you back again, he says, I hid my face from you for a moment. It's not that he actually deserted them. He just didn't let them see his presence in their midst. It reiterates exactly what we just said. And, and for the record, there's a couple of really neat Hebrew words here. For us to grasp, and there's a lot of them, the whole thing was originally in Hebrew, right? Go back and read it in the Hebrew, and you'll understand a lot more about what the Lord is saying. But there's a few things here that really stand out. First and foremost, he says, I hid my face from you for a moment. The word here in Hebrew is panay, uh, like panim, the, the, the face, the countenance, the presence. He says, I hid my face, my countenance, my presence for you, but with everlasting kindness or chesed, the kindness, mercy. Uh, uh, there's, there's even a degree of pity that goes into the, the context of the word chesed. But he says, uh, with everlasting chesed, with everlasting uh, kindness to you, I will have compassion on you. So it's in his chesed that he will have racham or rachamim, compassion, uh, mercy. 
mercy for us. The, the Hebrew word there for compassion is racham, uh, or the root word is racham. Uh, like when we, you know, most of the time when I open uh, a prayer, I say, uh, Ab Father of mercies. Uh, and so the root word there is racham, which is mercy, compassion, love. And he says, so through my kindness, through my chesed, I will be compassionate. I will show, uh, 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 I will show racham to you, rachamim to you, says Adonai, your redeemer. And the word redeemer, the, the, the base there is ga'al. And Gaal means to redeem. And, and it's, it's the same word used when we go back to the Torah and we read about the Kin, the, the redeeming kindred, the, the kindred redeemer, uh, you know, like uh, when we look at Ruth and Boaz, Boaz was a kindred redeemer. Uh, that's actually the context of the word here in the Hebrew, right? It's not just your redeemer as in he's coming to fix the day for you and bring you. He's not your Superman landing to, to, to destroy the enemy and take. He's your kindred redeemer. He's the one drawing you back into his presence. And when we look at the overall narrative of scripture, the kindred redeemer is the one that brings you the, 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 you know, their kindred's wife who was unable to have children under the chuppah and marries her and brings her into that covenant relationship with him. That's exactly what happens with Ruth and Boaz. And through that relationship, we get the, we get the Messiah and, and so on. And so the Lord is showing us, look, I'm, I'm not just the person that's going to fix things for you. But he says, I'm your redeemer. I'm the one that's bringing you back into covenant, into relationship, into marriage with me. There's also a context of the word Gaal of, of purchase or deliver that I'm going to take. You know, when we purchase something, there's an exchange of money to purchase the goods that we're buying. And that is, in fact, what happened when Yeshua offered his life for us. There was a purchase. There was an exchange of payment. He paid physically and literally for our sins so that we could be redeemed and restored to him. Uh, and so it's really important that we recognize that there's great depth to the words that the Lord is speaking here as he is promising Israel to restore them. And then verse 9, he goes on to say, For this is like the waters of Noah to me, for as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more cover the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you, though the mountains depart and the hills be shaken. My love will not depart from you. Nor will my covenant of peace be shaken, says Adonai, who has compassion on you. Who's he speaking to? Isaiah is speaking to Israel. And the Lord says, I will not depart from you, nor will my covenant of peace be shaken, says Adonai, who has compassion, who has racham uh, for you. The Lord says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never walk away from you. He's reiterating the same words that he says to Israel over and over and over again. And for us as believers, it's important that we recognize that these words are also being spoken to us. Because this is a living word that the Lord uses to speak to us day in and day out. And the Lord says to us in the same manner, because we're a part of the covenant. He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I brought you back and restored you with great mercy and kindness. And I will never leave you and forsake you. And I think one of the most powerful messages here, and, and for the record, my, my sermon has actually shifted considerably in the last 15 minutes from, from what my, my mind was thinking I was going, the direction I originally had planned for, for the message. But I think it's important that we understand this and we grasp this, all right? So he says in verse 8, as we said, in a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, right? Why is it so important that he talks about hiding his face, his countenance from us? Go back to Numbers chapter 6, beginning with verse 23, 22, sorry. Numbers 6, verse 22. 
Moses, or the Lord is speaking through Moses to Aaron, to the priesthood, says, Again, Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his son, saying, Thus you are to bless Israel by saying to them, Adonai bless you and keep you. Adonai make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Adonai turn his face towards you and grant you shalom. In both of those verses, verse 25 and 26, where it says his face, it's the same word that we read in Isaiah 54, his countenance, his face. It's his panim, his face toward us, his pane. Uh, he says, and grant you shalom, verse 27. In this way, you are to place my name over B'nai Israel, over the children of Israel, and so I will bless them. So he tells the priesthood, he tells the Aaronic order to bless Israel by proclaiming the face of Adonai upon them. The presence, the countenance, the revelation of Adonai upon them. And he says, and by this, you will place my name upon the children of Israel. So it's really important that we recognize, first and foremost, the children of Israel carry the name of the Lord. And I don't mean the name as in, you know, a, a word, a, a grouping of letters, right? When we look at the overall narrative of Scripture, there are countless names uh, and it's not really countless people have counted them. I just don't remember the exact numbers, but so I'm going to use the word countless loosely. There are countless names for the Lord that are presented throughout Scripture. And if we pay attention to each and every one of them, they all have one thing in common. They speak to the character and nature of who God is. So our name, when we think about the fact that how often do we see in Scripture about somebody being given a name? We go to Hosea, and his children were given very specific names that were a, a direct prophetic statement from the Lord. And then those names were changed as a direct prophetic statement from the Lord, right? And when we look through Scripture, we recognize that every individual who was given a name of importance in Scripture, those names meant something to what their calling would be. It meant something to who their character and nature would be. And the same is true for the Lord. When we talk about him being our father of mercies, it speaks to his character and his nature. When we talk about him being forgiving, it speaks to his character and nature. When we talk about him being Adonai, our Lord, our master, it speaks to his character and his nature. When we talk about him being our Abba, our daddy, it speaks to his character and his nature, right? So when the, the, the Lord speaks through Moses to Aaron and says, and by this blessing, you will place my name upon Israel. He's not saying by this, you're going to go and tattoo all of Israel with Yodevave, with the, the tetragrammaton, the divine name of God, the most holy and sacred name of God. But instead, what he's saying is you will place every bit of my character and my nature upon Israel, and they will be the bearers of my character and my nature because God called us to be a light to the nations. Let that sink in for a moment. So when we go to Isaiah 54 and he says in, in verse 7, For a brief moment I deserted you, but I will regather you and with great compassion. In a surge of anger I hid my face for a moment. Did he hide his face? Or did he hide his character and his nature that was placed upon us when his name was placed upon us? That we may carry his character and his nature to the nations. We actually marred the image of God that we were to present to the world around us because of our choice to walk in sin rather than in righteousness and holiness. And the Lord said, this is not the example I've called you to be. So I'm going to remove my character and nature or at least block, uh, cover, or veil my character and nature that has been placed on you for a little while, just for a little while. He doesn't say I physically removed it from you. He said, I just, I just made sure that it was hidden from you. As I hid my face, my, my panim, my character, my nature, my uh, presence from you for just a little while. 
And then I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to restore you to an even grander version of yourself. To an even greater statement of who I am. And how is it a greater statement? Because now not only is it a statement of freedom in that the Lord brought Israel out of uh, slavery in Egypt into freedom to serve him. Not only did he bring Israel to Mount Sinai, not only did he bring us into the promised land and fulfill everything he said with regards to giving the land of milk and honey to the people of Israel, to our forefathers, as he spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but now we come back even better because now we come back having walked away from him, fully restored again to what he called us to be in the first place. Not just freed from what others put us under, but now freed from what we put ourselves under. And so he replaces, he restores, he renews, he unveils his face, his presence, his countenance, his character and his nature that was placed upon uh, the people of Israel. I think it's very important for us to understand what's going on here and what's being spoken. Because when we go forward to the Gospels, and in particular John, one of the, uh, and we, we, it was an overwhelming message in our worship this morning too. When we go forward to John, the overwhelming message in John deals with a very uh, specific concept, and that is unity with the Lord. That is us as individuals within the body of Messiah being unified in the Lord, and that we as individuals and as a community be unified with the Lord. And Yeshua says, I want you to be one with me as I am one with the Father. Uh, the disciples ask Yeshua, hey, uh, you know, show us the Father. If, you, you know, if you're supposed to be God in flesh, show us the Father. And Yeshua says, if, if I've been with you so long and yet you still don't see that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me, for I and the Father are one. And then he goes on a little later and he says, I pray that you, the body of Messiah, are one with me as I am. And one with the Father. And this all links back to number six and the ironic benediction, the Birchat Kohanim, the ironic blessing spoken over Israel, that the Lord would place his face, his panim, upon us. And by this, the Lord says he will place his name, his character, his nature, the essence of who he is upon the people of Israel. You got to understand, as believers in Messiah, whether you are born Jewish, or you were born of the nations. As a believer in Messiah Yeshua, we are both natural and unnatural branches grafted into the root and the fatness of the olive tree, which is Israel. We both, natural and unnatural branches, make up the reality of the spiritual uh, commonwealth of Israel. It doesn't mean that a, a Gentile suddenly becomes Jewish. No more than belief in Messiah makes a Jew suddenly stop being Jewish. It doesn't work that way. We still have our unique roles and our purposes, but we become, uh, we become uh, citizens of the same kingdom. Because that kingdom isn't a kingdom of the lineage of the household of David, but it's a kingdom of the lineage of the household of Yeshua. And yes, Yeshua is in the order of David. He is in the lineage of David. But Yeshua's kingship is one far greater than David's because David was a kingship over Israel here on earth, whereas Yeshua's is a heavenly kingship. And so we, both natural and unnatural branches, are brought into the root and the fatness of the olive tree, which is Israel. And we become a part of the covenant that was spoken to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, because what was the, the, the message spoken to Abraham? That through his seed, the entire world would be blessed, right? And that's exactly what has happened. The nations have come into the body of Messiah and been blessed by the seed of Abraham, which was Yeshua. It wasn't speaking to Isaac, it wasn't speaking to Jacob, it was speaking specifically of Yeshua, 
And so we have now become a part of the commonwealth of Israel, and we have, in fact, both natural and unnatural branches, received the literal blessing of the seed of Abraham. And that blessing was a, a promise to all of the world. And that's what we're seeing happen as both Jews and non-Jews come into faith in Messiah Yeshua, into the body of Messiah. And yet, in the same way, just as he promises here in Numbers that he will place his name upon Israel as this blessing is spoken over the people, he has, in fact, placed his name within our hearts. As the circumcision of the heart that's spoken of in Jeremiah 31 begins and it occurs, the reality is, is that Yeshua, which is God himself robed in flesh, he is the word, the word robed in flesh, now dwells within us which is the circumcision of the heart. He now dwells within us, and so not only is there this figurative idea of his name being placed upon us, his face being placed upon us, but now there's a literal reality of his, his presence within our hearts and our lives. And as much as it was a, a complication to what Israel was supposed to be in the promised land when we sinned and walked, walked away from him, how much greater the complication is it, uh, how much greater of a heartbreak is it when we, the body of Messiah, both Jew and non-Jew alike, restored, redeemed, renewed through the salvation of Messiah Yeshua, fall prey to the temptation of the evil one. When we choose to walk contrary to the character and nature of the one whose breath resides within us. We have been given a new name because we are now part of a greater kingdom We've been given a new name because we are now part of a greater nation, because we are part of a greater family, and yet we mar that name that is placed within us by our choices, by our sins. This week's Torah Parsha tells us that, uh, uh, it says, cursed is the one who was hung on a stake uh, from Deuteronomy 21 verse 22. Or, uh, says, suppose a man is guilty of sin with a death uh, sentence and he is put to death and hung, hang, you hang him on a tree. His body is not to remain all night on the tree. Instead, you must certainly bury him the same day. For anyone who, uh, anyone hanged uh, is, cursed of, is cursed of God. You must not defile your land that Adonai your God is giving you as an inheritance. This was a prophetic statement of what would occur with Yeshua. Yeshua was hung on that cross, hung on that stake, took on a curse. There was no other way he could take on the curse of sin because he was perfect. He was spotless, but he was falsely accused with false witnesses. But the word of God doesn't say that the witnesses have to be accurate, although he does say be just, be righteous, be holy. He just says witness of two or three, and then capital punishment can occur. And so although the witnesses were wrong and the lies that they were telling were not uh, the reality of what Yeshua did, he was placed on the cross and died for our sins, but he willingly took that curse of being put on that tree and hung there before the community. He literally took that curse upon himself so that you and I could be restored and be able to walk in the reality of the blessing of his character and nature upon us and the blessing of his name robed over us. And the blessing of being a part of what he had always desired for the nation of Israel to be and to be a part of. And likewise, as we look uh, in, in number, or Deuteronomy chapter 23, you don't have to go there, but Deuteronomy 23, uh, there's, 
this uh, discussion about uh, the Ammonite and the Moabite, which were enemies of Israel. You know, they, were, they, they attacked Israel, they assaulted Israel, etc. And uh, the, the Lord says the, the Ammonites and the Moabites are to never be allowed to be a part of your kingdom. We go to verse 8, and he's talking to the Edomites and the Egyptians. He says, you are not to detest an Edomite or an Edomite, for he is your brother. You are not to detest an Egyptian, for you are an outsider, we're an outsider in his land. The children born to them in the third generation may enter the community of Israel. So there's this idea of those of, of the nations being able to come in. But when we go back just a few verses, he says that the, the Moabites and the Amorites are to never be allowed the Ammonites are to be never to be allowed into the nation of Israel. Yet, oddly enough, how does Yeshua come about? How does Melech David and Melech Shlomo come about? Through Ruth, who was a Moabite, who became a part of Israel, who said, your people will be my people, your God will be my God, where you go, I will go. And the reality is, it is through the restoration of even somebody of, of a people so despicable to the Lord that he said they could never be allowed into the community of Israel, that we see that no matter how far we have walked away from the Lord, there's always hope for restoration, for redemption, for renewal, for salvation. Because God desires nothing more than to place his name, his character and nature, his face upon his creation, which breathes his breath in their lungs. This is a message of hope for the nation of Israel that in spite of the fact that we were being taken captive into Babylon, in spite of the fact that our country was being destroyed and raided, in spite of the fact that the temple and the walls of Jerusalem were being torn down, that the Lord promises He will restore us. And it's a message of hope because you and I have walked in that reality of that restoration as believers in Messiah Yeshua. And so now we can carry that hope in our hearts as we pray for our friends and our family, as we pray for the Jewish community worldwide to come to know the true truth of the salvation of Yeshua. Because we can recognize that the Lord brought us back. How much more so could he bring somebody else back? I'm a fervent believer that I have to accept, not that it did occur, but I have to accept that it was at least possible that Adolf Hitler could have repented for his actions, for his sins, right before he died and accepted Yeshua and found salvation in order for me to accept that my sins could have been forgiven. Doesn't mean I believe he did, by any means, because I don't. Um, and it would kind of stink to get to heaven and find out he did, because, you know. He's Adolf Hitler. But aside from that, the, the reality is, is if I am to believe that I could be washed clean, renewed, and restored, I have to believe that even the worst of humanity has the same potential. And to make it even greater of a realization, it's what you and I have been called to be a part of, is to see the worst of creation be restored and renewed through the atonement of Yeshua, our Messiah. So that message of restoration, Isaiah 54, following the promise of a suffering servant who would bring salvation, who would die uh, for our sins, for our transgressions, who would take on the curse that we so rightly deserve. God promises restoration so that he can place his face back upon us, so that we, his face can be unveiled, so that we can see his glory and his countenance in our midst. 
so that we can receive through his kindness, his mercy, that we can be restored so that we can then take that salvation to the world around us and they can come to know the truth of the seed of Abraham that would bring blessing to the world. Amen. Avrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you. We love you and we adore you. Father, I thank you that you are a gracious and loving God. I thank you that your word rings true the same today as it ever has. And now not one word of yours will come back unfulfilled. Father, I thank you that as we have so many examples of your word becoming uh, fulfilled before the lives, uh, the eyes of the lives of man, that Lord, we can wholeheartedly rejoice in the reality that the day will soon come in which the fulfillment of Messiah's return will be right before our eyes and we will be able to rejoice in the kingdom of Messiah for all eternity. Father, I thank you that you have given us a commission to go and to make disciples of all men, to make tamudim of all men, that they may come to know the truth of your saving grace and be brought into that kingdom with us. Father, I pray that you give us a heart to share your countenance, your face with those around us so they will come to know the truth of your mercy and kindness and redemption. Father, I pray that you use us as individuals and as a community to continue to carry the face, the character, the nature, the name of God into the world that we live in. B'Shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua Messiah, we pray, and everyone says, Amen and Amen.